This is the audio drama Abbey Orchard Street. Episode 1 The Man in the Middle. Part 1 It had just stopped raining. Finally. I had been in England for five days, and this was the first real let up in the rain during that time. I was walking along Victoria Street towards the area of Westminster Abbey, doing some sightseeing. This trip to London was something I had always wanted to do. I had always thought I would have found a person to share it with. But, after 12 years in the armed forces, three of that in special forces, and another 15 years so far with the police service, it hadn't happened. Between deployments overseas in the army, and all the overtime and high-pressure jobs as a police officer, it didn't come up. I had some good friends in the greater London area, so it wasn't like I was lonely or anything. I liked my own company, and got to see what I wanted during the days at least, so it was all good. The Abbey was going to be next. As I got to the corner of Abbey Orchard Street, I came upon some crowds who seemed to be waiting for something. There was some anticipation in the air, so rather than fight the crowds, I decided to wait it out. I could hear the uniform sound of a car convoy coming down the road on what I couldn't get over was the wrong side of the road. There were multiple vehicles, so this was probably going to be interesting. Maybe somebody famous or one of the rich and shameless. Who knew? Some of the crowd were jostling for position to get the best photo with their devices. There was a cross-section of people there, so it made me wonder who it was they were expecting. I didn't keep up with anything, so not sure if this meant anything to me anyways. I looked over my right shoulder and clocked a guy. Let's call him Bruno dressed very dark, with his right hand inside of a gym bag. The guy's eyes were jumping back and forth. He twice giving knowing look to his left. I looked over that way and saw another dark-dressed guy. Let's call him Frank. It was like they were wearing uniforms, without wearing uniforms. The guy on the left was a little shorter and a little older. He also had his right hand in a gym bag. He, as well, was looking around. What's up with these guys? The crowd at this point was four or five people deep. The vehicles approached and came to a brief stop. Bruno sprang into action and drew a large semi-automatic handgun from his bag, fired it off twice in the air, shouting, Get away! As the crowd ducked or tried to move off to the sides, he brought his gun arm straight forward and started to fire. I moved towards him, seeing Frank in my peripheral vision with a small carbine moving towards the vehicle trying to get through the crowd, who were panicking. I knocked Bruno's gun arm into the air as he was still firing. I then twisted Bruno's gun hand into his chest area and swept his feet and brought him to the ground, landing on top of him, taking Bruno's breath away. Bruno still had control of the weapon, while I had control of his hand. The gun went off again and a round impacted Bruno's left shoulder. Bruno screamed in pain as I got control of the gun, after which I dropped the left elbow into his face, splitting his nose. I then kneed Bruno in the groin in the hope the incapacitation was complete. I then turned around and saw Frank firing single rounds from the carbine at one of the cars, which was attempting desperately to get out of the traffic jam of cars and people running all over the place. I could see the rounds bouncing off what appeared to be bulletproof windows. I approached Frank with the liberated handgun. 
appeared to be a Glock of some model, and yelled out, Stop! Frank turned to look, and then began to bring around his carbine. Seeing that Frank had a partial wall behind him as a backstop, I fired two rounds from the Glock. I caught Frank high in the chest with two rounds. I continued to move forward and body-checked him because he was partially collapsed. I then pulled the carbine out of his hands, dropped the mag, and threw it to the side. I turned around as I heard those weak police sirens and some whistles sound out. Suddenly, I felt a burning sensation in my shoulder. I dropped to one knee in extreme pain. Then there was all this yelling about dropping the gun. I realized no one knew who I was. A feeling of dredge hit me, and I dropped the gun to the ground. As I was lowering myself in pain to the ground, I got hit by at least two guys, both in uniform. I got kicked in the head and the ribs as a whole group of uniformed and plainclothes coppers roughly, and not very efficiently, put handcuffs on me. The pain in the shoulder was bad, and I wondered how bad the wound was. My head was spinning. I looked over and watched as a couple of police officers had rolled over Frank towards me and were opening his jacket, and there it was. A suicide vest. Suddenly there was panic. They felt my chest area looking for a device, all the while yelling at me if I had a bomb or any other weapon. I was dragged down the street and then sat up behind a wall as a paramedic was allowed to give me at least a quick look over. Apparently, I had a flesh wound. The paramedic quickly cleaned the wound and bandaged it up, all the while two coppers were telling him to hurry up. I was dragged to a police van and put in the back for a very quick ride. When I got out, the two officers stood me up and waited while a very distinguished 50-year-old guy in plain clothes came up to me and looked. There was no doubt this guy was a serious copper. Probably one of those special branch types that live for what had just gone down. He introduced himself as Detective Superintendent Ford of the Anti-Terrorist Team, SO-15. I was brought into the South London Police Station, where the officer in charge asked me a couple questions. Not really liking where this was going, I decided to be tight-lipped and wait to speak to a lawyer and perhaps someone from the High Commission. I gave him my name and address. There were some questions about my health, and the officer in charge took note of the flesh wound on my shoulder and the various scrapes and bruises emerging from my arrest. I was told because of the nature of the incident I wasn't going to be allowed to make a call, but that a duty solicitor would be provided. The officer in charge advised that an independent police watchdog would be contacted and maybe invoking their mandate. I didn't know what that was all about, but this was turning into a bit of a circus. I was taken to an interview room where all my outer clothes were seized for forensic identification, and I was given a nice sweatsuit that had kind of a prison vibe to it. At about I wasn't sure what time, as they'd taken away all my personal property when I'd been paraded in front of the officer in charge. Detective Superintendent Ford and D.S. Browning came into the room. Browning was holding a small plastic evidence bag with my police credit union payment card. I was on holiday, so I didn't have any police-related material on me. No warrant card, no business cards, or anything. Browning asked, Who are you and who do you work for? I didn't know these guys and certainly didn't trust anything going on, so I just asked for a lawyer. I was being a bit of a dick, but holy crap, Batman, this was serious business. I knew they would be digging in quickly to figure out who I was, and I figured they would be on the phone to someone back home within the hour. About 15 minutes later, a suit comes in, saying he's the duty solicitor and would be representing me during any questioning. 
He explained that if I had an alibi or an explanation for my actions in their system, I had to talk now, otherwise it may not be admissible later. I thought about it briefly, and after he confirmed we had lawyer-client privilege, I told him what had happened and who I was. He had that look on his face as he had never been in this situation before. That made two of us. He left the room to have a brief conversation with someone, and then came back about 30 minutes later. He advised that there was a bit of a discussion going on about who would interview me first. The police watchdog, or the police? The solicitor then went out to make some calls, and told me to stay put and not to speak to anyone without him being there. That's kind of funny. I had no control over staying put, or anybody coming in to talk to me. Two people came into the room. One was Bruce something, and the other was Randy something. They were with the watchdogs. My solicitor wasn't there. Randy looked to be older and wiser, and Bruce looked like a bit of a, well, a used car salesman. Bruce quipped, Listen, we're going to sort out these coppers for you. No reason for getting shot and banged up. Randy looked at Bruce like, What are you doing? And I immediately decided I was not going to have anything to do with this group. My solicitor came into the room not very happy. He asked to speak to Bruce and Randy outside, and I could hear yelling through the door. I am liking this guy suddenly. He comes back, and I can see he is starting to like this gig. It must look interesting from his perspective. He apologized for the barge in, and explained to me that the watchdog had invoked its mandate over the situation as it pertained to me. They wanted to talk to me about being shot and any physical injuries I sustained during the arrest. He advised I was under no legal obligation to submit to an interview, but that the police would have to share any evidence or statements during their investigation. I told him what Bruce had said, and advised him I did not want to take part in anything that even looked unprofessional, or at worst, a stitch-up of some sort. I also told him I may be under the jurisdiction for the police watchdog back home, but I wasn't sure. He seemed to be pleased somewhat and advised me that Bruce and Randy would come in shortly and they could probably deal with them pretty quickly. Randy and Bruce came in 20 minutes later and put a digital recorder on the tabletop along with their case books. The solicitor sat beside me as Randy took the lead and read out some opening remarks about police accountability and that I was considered by them to be a witness only, and they were here to take a statement about what happened. My solicitor spoke up and advised that because of my criminal jeopardy, with the overall situation that his client, me, wasn't going to be making any statement at this time. The two of them did not look happy. After trying to talk me into it, my solicitor had enough and told them the interview was over. The two of them slowly left the room, like they had gotten into trouble for chewing the remote. I looked at the solicitor, and I think he was having a good time. He caught his breath and asked if I was ready for the real bit. I nodded I was. Part 2. I was walked, along with my solicitor, to a larger interview room that had a one-way mirror. The decor was better, along with the air conditioning. Ford and Browning sat down in the most unconfrontational way. I could sense the situation had changed somewhat. No matter what went down, I was not going to make a statement at this time. I was tired, shot, and sore. I wanted to go home, take my time, and do this on my terms. Browning advised that I was no longer under arrest, and that they would appreciate it if they could speak to me about the events that had happened that day. My solicitor asked a series of questions so that we, meaning me, could fully understand what my situation was. I was no longer arrested. 
I could leave at any time, and that my property, other than my clothes, would be returned to me right away. My solicitor asked for a moment, and the two detectives left the room. He leaned towards me and suggested I take my leave. This whole thing was swirling around, and it was not a run-of-the-mill case. If I decide to stay and give a statement, he would of course stay and provide legal guidance as required. I told him I was tired and just wanted to go home and deal with this under my own terms. He agreed. He went to the door of the room and indicated to the two detectives to come back in. Browning started the recording, identified who was in the room, and reiterated that I was no longer under arrest and that this was a witness statement only. My solicitor immediately stopped him and advised that his client did not want to submit to a statement at this time and that he would be leaving. Both detectives were very surprised. Detective Superintendent Ford looked at me. D.S. Phillips, I understand that you have been through a lot, but we would appreciate your cooperation in this matter. A serious terrorist incident was averted, mainly to your efforts, and we'd like to understand as much as possible about what happened. My solicitor advised them that, of course, his client, me, would cooperate, but not at this time or place. With that, we walked out of the room, collected my things, and left the building in my new sweatsuit. The solicitor got me a taxi, and I headed back to the hotel. That was quite a sight for the people sitting in the lobby. I went upstairs, opened up my laptop, and booked an Air Canada flight home. It was leaving in four hours, so I jumped into the shower. When I got out, I noticed my bruises were starting to come out. Very attractive. I grabbed all my stuff and headed down to the lobby to check out. The hotel staff were disappointed my trip was shortened, but wished me a good trip back. I noticed a couple guys loitering around. One of them was a little obvious. No doubt people were still interested in me. I picked up my phone and called my solicitor, and he advised the situation had not changed. I headed outside and got on the train to the airport. I arrived in, what a zoo. I don't mind traveling, but this airport was ridiculous. After checking my bag, I headed over to security. I had my boarding pass and passport ready to go. As I arrived at security, a dark suit approached me. He identified himself as Staff Sergeant Andre Martin, National Police, from the High Commission. He asked if I was okay and inquired whether I should come with him to have a word with the crew from SO15 before I left. So, Ford and Browning had played the police liaison card. I thanked him for his concern, but that I was going home. I went through security and was surprised there weren't any other issues. There must have been a lot of phone calls going on between the police in London and the folks back home. I wonder how the reception back home would be. As I sat down, waiting to board, I phoned my boss back at the robbery squad, but it went to a voicemail. I gave the briefest of accounts, as I was obliged under the police act to report being arrested. I had been held incommunicado, and there was no doubt talking had already taken place between the two police services. The voicemail should cover my obligations for now. I boarded and sat down and put on a headset. I wasn't in the mood to be chatty with the tourist couple sitting beside me. After a smooth takeoff, I drifted off. It had been like 24 hours since I had slept. I woke up sore as could be. The hostess came by, and I got a quick coffee and a glass of water, which was followed by a couple painkillers. I continued to listen to some music on my headphones and was happy when I saw Toronto out the window. I was home. The flight was in a bit of a lineup, but eventually we landed and taxied to the gate. I wondered whether I was going to get through customs and all that quickly. I hoped so, because I just wanted to go home to bed. I had a thought and made a quick call for insurance. 
and then I called and left a message for my doctor to get squeezed in the next day. We were cool, so I was pretty sure he'd want to see me, especially after I said I'd been shot. Part 3. After the aircraft docked, I made my way out onto the walkway and onwards to pick up my luggage. I waited with everyone else for a luggage to come down the carousel. Eventually the bags started coming down. I spotted mine and started to make my way towards the customs line with my customs card. I had no idea how this was going to work. Would I get stopped or get through with a minimum of fuss? As I approached an open officer, I saw three stern-looking folks. They had to be coppers. Approach the desk from the rear. The first one approached and dismissed the uniformed officer. He identified himself as Customs Superintendent Ken Tilson. He asked me to follow him to secondary. I was taken through a series of hallways and then asked to sit in what appeared to be a conference room. So things aren't that bad yet. At least it isn't an interview room with a locked door. Tilson left the room and the other two sat themselves down after closing the door. They identified themselves as Staff Sergeant Ben Shaw and Sergeant Krista Shields of the National Police Security Section. Okay. These were the spy and terrorist folks. I wonder who called them. Shaw advised that they wanted to talk about what happened in London. I told him I was only going to make one statement, and that would be to SO15 in due course. All good coppers know that if you make more than one statement, you will be cross-examined forever on the differences between the statements for days. I asked if that was all and got up to leave. Shaw advised I wasn't going anywhere. I locked my phone and redialed the last number called. Mr. Cook... It is about our previous conversation. Yes, I need your assistance. Thank you. Shaw and Shields were looking at me. They did not look happy. Shaw explained that I had some explaining to do. I advised the two of them that I was just waiting on my lawyer to attend to assist me in dealing with my detention. Shaw tried to backtrack and tell me I wasn't under arrest, but when pushed by me, he advised I couldn't leave because I hadn't cleared customs. I told him to get the customs people in here and we could deal with all that because they weren't customs officers. They both left the room for a couple minutes. I thought about just trying to walk out, but I knew I had the upper hand, and when Gerald Cook arrived, things would get interesting. Gerald was one of those lawyers who often assisted police officers in trouble. He was a good guy and a better lawyer. He was smooth, but when he thought someone was being put in a corner, he could be a horror show to deal with. A couple minutes turned into 50 minutes. The door opened and Gerald was pushing through while still yipping at the National Police. And there better not be any recording devices operating in here while my client and myself consult. With that, the door closed, and he took off his coat silently and sat down. What's up? was all he said. I went into detail about the incident, my arrest, the negative exchange with the watchdogs in London, and my now situation with the national police types. I told him I wanted to give a statement, and before I could go on, he blurted out that we'd better sort out if the watchdogs here would be involved. With that, he told me to grab my stuff, as we were leaving. As we walked out, Shaw tried to stop us. Gerald yipped at him, asking whether his client was under arrest. The answer was no, but they'd, I hadn't cleared customs. So, Gerald asked where that was, and I was escorted back to the customs hall. I walked up to an unexpecting 20-something officer, presented my passport and declaration form, and waited. The officer observed the customs superintendent, the national police, Gerald, and asked the usual questions. The custom officer looked briefly around, and losing interest, quickly handed me back my documents, and off I went. Gerald asked me if I needed a ride, but I could see my boss, Detective Inspector Rick Sterling, waiting by a massive support beam, nursing a coffee. Rick and I went way back. He was a straightforward and no-nonsense guy, and I knew I was in good hands. 
As Gerald walked by on his way out, the two nodded to each other. Not sure if they had any history, but everybody knew Gerald. We walked in silence out of the terminal. I looked behind me and Sean Shields were standing on the upper walkway, watching as I left. I gave them a polite wave. For the record, they didn't wave back. Part 4. Rick and I drove to my place in silence. He came in and I retrieved two beers from the fridge. We sat down and I prompted the conversation. I will talk to the Brits, but their watchdog types were dicks. I just wanted to sort out about our watchdogs before I put pen to paper. I imagined that our chief would blow a gasket if I didn't cooperate. But with getting shot, being a hero and everything, I figured I was good. For a bit anyways. He nodded. He wasn't much of a talker. I got up to reapply a bandage to my shoulder, and when I took off my shirt on the way to the kitchen covered, Rick saw all the injuries. He immediately understood everything. He went into the other room and made a call. He told me later that he was talking to the chief who was sitting in his office with his legal advisor, the detective superintendent of detectives, and the liaison with the watchdogs. He walked back into the room with the phone pressed against his chest. Did you ever ID yourself as a police officer or use any police-issued equipment? I advised him. I never told anyone, even the Brits, that I was a police officer. And the gun I used to stop the attack, I took off one of the bad guys. And I was in another country for good measure. Rick liked that and went back into the other room for a couple of minutes. While Rick was out of the room, Gerald sent a text that they should meet at his office tomorrow afternoon to discuss the issues and moving forward. He also advised he was going to have a discussion shortly with the liaison who was currently talking to the chief. Nobody thought they had jurisdiction. Rick then advised that SO15 wanted to come over in a couple days to interview me. I told him to pass on to them that it was tentatively possible the day after next as I wanted to go to the doctors and talk to Gerald the next day. Rick nodded and spoke briefly and gave me the thumbs up. Rick had arranged for a couple of plainclothes thugs to sit outside my house for the rest of the evening and overnight. I told him to have them come inside and they could watch TV and help themselves to the meager fridge offerings. A couple guys came in and nodded. Tony and Paul from the special section. Good guys. With that, I closed my door and went to sleep. Part 5 The next morning, the night crew had gone out for coffee and breakfast sandwiches, which went down really well. I dismissed them and took a cab over to the doctor's office. I had taken a few painkillers, so I didn't want to drive. I waited for about two minutes when the doc ushered me into his office. Him and the nurse started taking my temperature, pressure, and had my shirt off in like no time at all. He took a close look at the GSW and all the bruises and abrasions. He asked what I was taking, and I told him T1s. He gave me a prescription in case I needed it and told me I had to stretch and maybe go see a physioterrorist as I was stiffening up. He advised the wound was minor and that it looked good. He offered to give me a referral to a plastic guy if I wanted to address the scar. And with that, I headed out to grab a coffee and then to go over to Gerald's office. As I sat down with my coffee in the cafe, my phone vibrated. Rick was asking what my 20 was. I told him the cafe. He advised to stand by for 20 minutes. About 25 minutes later, the chief walked in and ordered a coffee to go, and then sat down. He looked at my face as the bruises were coming out. You okay? I told him I was okay. I had seen the doctor, and was heading to Gerald's in a few minutes. I told him I would cooperate, but just wanted to ensure I wasn't exposed. He nodded and said there was a request by the National Police to join SO15 with any interview. He saw my face and stopped me. He advised that they had already told them no, and that they had advised SO15 that Rick would be the liaison with them if that was okay with me. I nodded. I was good with that. As his coffee arrived, he shook my hand. You stopped a bad thing over there. Good job, and we are here to support you. And with that, he nodded to one of his security guys and was gone.
I headed over to Gerald's office, and I waited as I was a little early. He ushered me in, and I thanked him for yesterday. He advised that he had had a great time and not to worry. We discussed at length what to do. We came to the perfect solution. I called Rick to tell him I was at Gerald's. He advised that SO15 were expected in by 4 p.m., and that they wanted to interview me the next morning. Gerald nodded, and we went to work. The next day, I put on a nice suit and met up with Gerald at a cafe next to the headquarters building. We had a last-minute talk and confirmed our course of action. When we walked into HQ, we went to Rick's office. Along the way, I was stopped by, like, everybody asking if I was okay. I sat down at my desk. What a disaster paperwork was on it. Well, Gerald pressed the flush. Eventually, Rick came over, nodded to Gerald, and we headed to an interview room. Inside was Detective Superintendent Ford and a Detective Inspector Pollard. We all shook hands like we had no history at all and sat down. Gerald was having a great time. Rick was sitting off to the side wishing he was somewhere else. As Ford started off, Gerald, of course, interrupted him, wanted confirmation that I was under no legal jeopardy and who the statement was going to be shared with. Ford was thrown off. I was just beginning to appreciate the gift that was Gerald. Ford advised that I was a witness only to a very serious crime, and that according to the facts known to them presently, confirmed by Crown Counsel, that was that. He also advised that they were obliged to provide the statement to the independent agency who investigated police misconduct, and that that agency had revoked their mandate to conduct an independent investigation. Ford provided some sort of documentation to Gerald confirming as such. Gerald and I nodded to each other, confirming our previous conversations. Gerald advised that we are ready to proceed. With that, Superintendent Ford, with great ceremony, turned on the recording device and went into a procedural preface for the interview. When he was done, he poised a question. Detective Sergeant Smith Phillips, if you could advise us what, if anything, happened in the area of Victoria Street and Abbey Orchard Street in London, United Kingdom, several days ago. With that, Gerald interrupted the interview. He loved doing that and was having just a great time. My client has prepared a statement, which he's going to read into the record and supply a copy of the same. He will not be answering any questions today, but will respond to any written questions promptly subsequent to this interview. Ford wasn't sure what to do. Rick was either going to laugh or yell at me. Not sure. Ford composed himself and suggested we proceed. I then began reading the statement I had written in Gerald's office the previous afternoon. It was seven pages long. Gerald had read it over and provided some tiny suggestions to help the flow. When I was done, I pushed the document over to Ford, who quickly took hold of it. For 20 minutes, he read it over, supplying each page upon his reading to Inspector Pollard. They then suspended the interview and left to have a conversation. When they came back, Ford advised they were satisfied now and may follow up with counsel if they did, in fact, have any further questions. I have to say, it was a good statement. Ford was smiling and reached across the desk and shook my hand. Pollard looked happy as well. Rick even looked happy now. With that, the Brits headed out, dropping by the chief's office on the way out of the building, apparently. I thanked Gerald and headed out to the cafeteria to get something cold. Rick had disappeared somewhere. When I got to the cafeteria, I couldn't pay for anything. A couple guys from the squad had caught up to me, paid for my drink and my jello. I love jello. And then they dragged me over to the table to ask what was going on. We talked for a bit. It was good to hang out. As I got back to the office, Rick walked me out again to the chief's office. The chief of detectives and the legal advisor were all there. He dismissed them all, and it was just the two of us. He leaned forward. Well done.